Grab your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, and if by chance you don't have a paper copy or a, a digital copy of God's Word, right there in the pew in front of you, uh, there is a copy of God's Word. We want to encourage you just to uh, turn there with us so that we can study it together. Uh, this morning, the message is entitled, A God-Given Ministry. Is ministry really just for a few people, or, or are we missing something? Are we unintentionally stunting the growth of God's church because we're not following what the New Testament teaches? I mean, is Christianity really just come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, have a place in heaven and just wait to die to go there? Or is there more to it? Well, you know, Paul's going to answer both of these questions for us in our text. Back to the matter, I want to go ahead and give you the answer on the one big thing this morning. It's this, it's every believer has been given access to God and a ministry for God. So let's look at it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and ask if you would stand as we honor the reading of God's word here as we study together. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says this. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation uh, to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart, and such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, we confess our need for your Holy Spirit to teach us your word. And confident that as we humbly seek you, Lord, you will meet with us. And so, Father, this morning, as we open your word and study it together, may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing this morning is that every believer has been given access to God and a ministry for God. And it's important that we understand this together. Uh, now, before we start diving into it, I want to go ahead and give you a couple of terms that we're going to use throughout this morning so we're all on the same page. Uh, you're going to hear uh, me talk about the Old Covenant. When you think Old Covenant, I want you to think of the law, specifically summed up in the Ten Commandments. And then when we talk about the new covenant, I want you to think of the gospel. All right, the fact that the Spirit has come and the new ministry that we have, in fact, been given. So when we talk about what is a new covenant ministry, well, there's two things that we see in our text here. The first one is this, that a new covenant ministry is a Spirit-empowered ministry. We see it there in the first uh, five verses. Now, as Paul opens chapter 3, he's continuing to defend himself against relentless attacks. Okay, there are, there's this group there in Corinth that most likely came from Galatia, and they are just attacking, attacking, attacking. 
And so Paul has been defending himself for, for a little bit now, and he opens up by saying, do we need a letter of commendation uh, from you or, or for you? Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you and I in 2019, uh, but in those days, what would happen is if a teacher was leaving a city and going to a new city, the city that he was in and had been teaching in, they would write a letter saying, we know this guy, we know what they teach, you know, yes, he, he's teaching correctly. And they would take that letter and they would give it to people in the new city so that they would know, okay, this is somebody that's been approved of, that, that we should listen to. Now, if you and I today, if we want to know, is somebody truly giving us God's word, all we have to do is open our Bibles and listen to what they say. And what they say ought to match up with God's word. And if it doesn't, there's a problem. Okay, and I mean, there's a lot of different ways. You can go on social media. You can go to Apple iTunes for podcasts. You can go to SoundCloud. There's a lot of different ways there. But basically, these letter of commendations were a seal of approval. And Paul says, listen, I don't need you to write a letter for me to take to another city. You are our letter of approval. If anybody wants to know what I'm preaching, all they have to do is look at your life. Okay, and this, Paul's argument is simply this. If I am teaching the word of God, then the people who hear it, believe it, and obey it are going to live differently. That's all the proof that's necessary. And so he's going, I'm not going to defend myself and, and say, hey, will you give me a letter? I'm just going to say, why don't you look at the people who are listening to what I'm teaching and decide, is this really from God or not? See, because what these false teachers were going after with Paul was this. They were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to keep the law. And Paul's going, that's a false gospel. It's not true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. There's nothing you and I can add to what God has already done through Jesus on the cross. And in fact, Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 21 that if we could save ourselves by obeying the law, then Jesus died for nothing. So the very fact that Jesus came, lived, and died is proof that you and I cannot save ourselves. And we have to understand all of this. You see, Paul is going, I'm not doing my ministry in my own power and strength. If you see in verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Paul's going, who am I? I don't matter. You know, David, in, in the Psalms, he asks, who is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, what could I, as a person created by God who is fallen and in sin, what could I give or do that God could not do for himself. I want us to understand the privilege it is for you and I to be in ministry. And by the way, if you're a blood-bought, born-again child of God, you are in ministry. Okay? I want us to understand this privilege that God could have used anything he wanted because he created it all and he chose he chose to use us. And this is where the church in America, by and large part, and churches today are really struggling. We live in a culture of celebrity pastors. You know, who, who's the guy that's growing his church the fastest or, you know, has a church of 10,000, 20, 30,000? 
let's have him write a book or let him lead a conference and then we can figure out what he did and then we can take it back to our smaller church and we can do that. Like that's the culture we live in. Can I just call on us all to do this and go, let's reject it outright. Okay, I mean, now please, this is going to sound terrible, all right, because Lifeway is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But they come out with like thousand studies a year. All right, maybe not that many, but it feels like that way. And they keep pushing it, okay? Now listen, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Please don't misunderstand me, okay? But I'm concerned that we are relying too much on personality and programs to do what only God can do. As Forrest Gump said, I may not be a very smart man, but I know what love is. It's Jesus Christ. If you want to know, am I a man or woman of God that I'm supposed to be? Are we a church that God has called us to be? How could I possibly know that? I can read his word. And as I read, especially the new covenant there, this is what I learn. If we want to be a church that God blesses and uses for his glory, it's going to require a few things. Number one, prayer. We cannot do anything in our own strength. That's what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 5. For without me, you can do nothing. So we need to pray. The second thing we need to be about, we need to be about God's word. And then the third thing that we need to be about is obedience in what we read in God's word. Literally, if we did that, we could put a lot of personalities and programs out of business because that's God's way. This is how we make sure that we are living in spirit empowered. You know, there's always stories of high personalities and Men who, who seem to be men of God who are crashing and burning in ministry. Why? Because they depended on what they could do. Church, I'm going to tell you something. You and I, we can't save ourselves and we sure aren't going to build the kingdom of God ourselves. We have to be men and women who are on our face daily before God saying, Lord, I need you. Give me wisdom. Give me guidance. And then we do so as we open the word of God. And then we obey. This is what it means to be spirit empowered. History, it's not about us, it's about God. It's not about, all right, what can I get up and do for you today, God? Yeah, I mean, so often we go, all right, Lord, I want to do this. Will you bless my plans? And it sounds great, but church, that is so deceptive. When we go, hey, Lord, I want to do this for you. Will you bless it? That is a man-centered theology. All right? Newsflash, maybe for some people here, this book is not about us. It's about God. Now, it reveals who we are. The hero of the story is never me. It's him. And that's what we have to focus on. And so not only do we need to rely on God's power to save us, but we also need to rely on God's power for us to serve him. The right question is, Lord, what do you want to do in me and through me today? Here, here am I, Lord. Send me. Now, I, I want to caution you on this. If you pray that type of prayer, 
and you are sincere, you better be ready for a wild ride. Because God very seldom is going to run you in the lane where you are the most comfortable in. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. Now, some of you are going to find this hard to believe, but I'm a shy person. I am socially awkward. Crowds intimidate me. If this is what God chose to do through me, I can't explain any more than, than you can. And that's the purpose. That when you say, Lord, use me, what you're essentially doing is relinquishing all control of your life, saying, God, I'm yours. Send me where you want me. Do with me what you want. Because I exist for your glory. But I'm going to tell you this. It may be a wild ride, but there will never be a more fulfilling purpose than when the Holy Spirit uses you to do what you could never do on your own. If you want purpose in your life, it starts by surrendering to the power of the gospel to save you. And then it's surrendering every single day to trust him to do what only he can do. And we see this play out in the rest of the text because from verses 6 to 18, so the the rest of chapter 3, what we're going to see is a new covenant ministry is contrasted with the law. And and Paul gives five contrasts in this text. And and we're going to try to walk through them reasonably quickly to understand. But in order to do that, we need to give a little bit of a background of what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about in verses 6 to 18 about how Moses was called by God to go up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. And Moses was up there the first time for 40 days. Now, the Israelites, they, they got a little anxious, okay? They're like, we don't even know what happened to this guy. We're, you know, we need to be able to, to have something that we could say, that's our God. Now, why did they have that natural tendency? Remember, they had spent the last 400 years in Egypt. They had seen all of the false gods, all of the idolatry there. So even though God had delivered Israel out of Egypt, Egypt wasn't out of Israel yet. Okay? Can we just be honest? God's delivered us from our sin, but all of our sin's not delivered out of us yet. You know, sometimes something happens and we can revert back to that old person and we have to go, whoa, where'd that come from? Okay, and we have to ask God to forgive us. Well, that's what's happening there at the base of Mount Sinai and God rightfully so gets furious. He sends Moses back down the the mountain and he comes out and he sees that this nation that was miraculously delivered by God from slavery in Egypt is now worshiping a golden calf and Moses gets furious and he breaks the tablets and then we read this and the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell on the people that day about 3,000 people God struck down 3,000 people in a day 
because they disobeyed the law. Specifically, the second commandment, you shall make no graven images of anything in heaven or on earth, anything that flies or creeps on the ground. That's why Paul says in verse 6, for the letter kills. Church, what you and I need to understand is the law was never given to save us. The law, Paul says later in, in the New Testament, that is our schoolmaster designed to make us aware of our sin so that we could see the need for a Savior. We're going to come back to this in a little bit, but if you try to make your law, your life about living by the law, you're going to be a moral person, but you may not be a saved person. Okay, again, we're, we're going to come back to this because what we see is the law took people who thought they were alive and revealed they were actually dead. Now, let's contrast this with when the Spirit came, the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. We read this in Acts 2.41. It says, then, that's after Peter had preached, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Pentecost is the new Mount Sinai. I don't have time to go down that, but man, that's a fun trail to go, Okay. But the law took those who thought they were alive and revealed they were dead, while the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, took those who were dead in sins and gave them life. Life that we could not have on our own. The second contrast we see in the law is what the covenant is written on. Paul says that the Old Testament was (coughs) written on tablets of stone. Now, why is that important? Because that's external. The law brings external change. The law treats the symptom, not the root. Let's say you've got some bad habit in your life. And you go, you know what, this is a bad habit. I shouldn't have this habit. If you're depending on the law, you're going to go, I shouldn't do this, so I'm going to stop doing this. But you never address why you did it in the first place. Okay, we'll, we'll bring it home to something that we as, uh, especially Southern Baptists, understand. Food. Had a stressful day. How many of you got a comfort food? Like something that you just yummy, right? Some of you are going, just one? Y'all are my people. So here's the thing. You go, man, I, I really shouldn't run to the refrigerator every time I get stressed out. So next time I get stressed out, I'm not going to go to the refrigerator. That's good. I mean, that's, that's an external change. But you never dealt with why you were running to it in the first place. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine, which in his debauchery or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He wasn't picking on a pet sin. Paul was saying there's two ways that we deal with problems in life. We either deal with it the world's way or we deal with it God's way. Okay? And so the tablets of stone bring about external change, which is temporary at best. But the spirit here, what we see is it's written on the tables of the heart. What does that mean? It's internal. The Holy Spirit doesn't just deal with the symptoms of sin. It deals with the root cause of sin which is a a diseased heart. Jeremiah would say that a heart is 
deceitful and desperate and wicked. If you want lasting, meaningful, permanent change, it can only come through the transformation of the gospel and the Holy Spirit living inside of you and changing you. Because as the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, as you have a relationship with Jesus, he changes your heart and then begins to renew your mind, which means he changes your thoughts and your attitudes about stuff. And as your heart's changed and your attitudes are changed, guess what becomes naturally changed? Your actions. And this is what we desperately need. The third contrast that we see in this is the longevity of each covenant. And it really kicks up about verse uh, 7 and goes down to 16. The Old Testament law was designed by God to be temporary. It was never meant to be eternal. Why? Because the Old Testament pointed to the new covenant. Who's the new covenant? Jesus. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, for all the promises of God, that's all of the Old Testament, in Him, Jesus, are yes. In other words, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled and points us to Jesus. The law was temporary until the eternal came. And that which is eternal, who is Jesus, fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is not important. Again, I don't have time to go there. We don't do away with the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled the New Testament for us. And so we need to understand, you know, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 Paul tells us that the law was a foreshadow of the things to come. So what you and I read, you know, some people go, I just don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. like, he's on every page. All of the Old Testament points us to who Jesus is, his purpose for coming, which was to save sinners from our sin. And so the Old Testament law was designed by God to be temporary. So that at the right time, the eternal would step in and fulfill all the promises of God. Then we've got the fourth contrast, which is really what the law leads to. See, Paul said, I wouldn't have known what sin was unless the law said, thou shalt not cut it. The law brings the knowledge of sin, but it doesn't show us the solution. But the Spirit, through the gospel, points us to the solution. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace have you been saved through faith. Not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, the law shows that we're spiritually dead. And the Spirit points us to how we can have life. The law leads to bondage and slavery because we realize just how sin-sickened we are. But now look at verse 17 in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. Now, the Christian's freedom, okay, the Christian's freedom is not so that we can do whatever we want. Our freedom in Christ is so that we are freed to do what God wants from us. This is huge. 
for us to understand. Some people go, man, I'm not up under the law, so I can do whatever I want. You've never understood Jesus. You've never met Jesus. Because if you were grateful for what Jesus did for you, you want to continue to live the way that you were, which was sending you to an eternal hell. Salvation says that the penalty of sin has been paid on the cross and the spirit living inside of us means this, that the power of sin has been broken in your life and in my life. I don't have to continuously give in to that sin. I can go to God's word and depend on God's spirit to deliver me from that sin. That's, that's what Paul's getting at there in, in Romans chapter 7. You know, he's talking about the things I should do, I don't do, the things I shouldn't do, all oh, those are things I do. His grand summary is, I'm a wretched man. And, and that'd be bad news if that chapter stopped right there, but it doesn't. So he goes to verse 25. But thanks be unto God, who is rich in mercy. The thing is, church, we can't deliver ourselves from sin. We would replace one bad habit with another bad habit. But as we depend on the Spirit of God to use the Word of God and the people of God, He gives us victory over those things that once held us in sin. Do you understand the privilege it is and the joy of the gift that the church is from God? My heart breaks so often because I, I hear people throughout the week go, you know, I can be a Christian, not go to church. Oh, man. Can you receive the gospel apart from church? Yes. But you're never going to be what God created you to be apart from his blessing. All right, I mean, Luke 4 says, and as was his, Jesus' custom, he went to the synagogue. All right, here's my line. If going to church was important for Jesus, it's important for Justin. Okay? or whatever your name happens to be. But then you get to the writer of Hebrews. Okay, and chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 talk about let us provoke one another, prod one another to love and to good works, and let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. All right, so this fact that I can be a Christian, not go to church, please don't think this is a 2019 invention. Like it's been around for a while, okay? But the gift of the church is this that we get to draw together with brothers and sisters who have the same Lord to be encouraged, to be equipped and trained to do the work of ministry, and we are to prod one another to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love others as ourselves. Why? We said it on Wednesday. Loving God the way we're supposed to and loving others is not natural. Because we are sinners by birth and by choice, it is natural for us to love three people, me, myself, and I. So we need the church to hold us capable of living the spirit-empowered life. That means we need one another that if we see something in one of our lives, including the pastor, by the way, if you see or hear something that's not right, you need to love me and love God enough that you privately pull me aside and go, hey, brother, you know what? The, the Word of God says this was wrong we can pray together. Okay, we need that. Because when you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you are susceptible to the wolf's attack. The wolf is Satan. 
and he will track you down and he will put every weakness in front of you and he will derail your faith faster than you can think about it. That's why you need the body to hold us but nothing will ever replace the word of God. See, prayer is us talking to God. The word of God is God talking back to us. So we need to be daily in this. To say, Father, speak to me. Guide me, strengthen me in all of us. So then the, the last contrast really sums up the previous four. And it's what each covenant creates. The old covenant creates morality. Yeah, I've heard people say, you can't legislate morality. Sure you can. You can make enough laws to make a moral people. But here's the problem. Moral people don't necessarily translate into redeemed people. The old covenant creates this long list of thou shalt and thou shalt not. This laundry list of rules. It ultimately leads to legalism in which I use my perceived good religion to judge your poor religion. And that doesn't lead to life. It leads to slavery. And it leads to your death. But what the Spirit does is focuses us not on morality, but on a relationship with the God who died in our place to redeem us from our sins. We'll illustrate it this way. You've probably heard somebody say, or you may have even said it, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Now, I mean, that sounds great, right? I got some issues in life. I need to work on them, so I'm going to be a new, better person. Again, it sounds good because in our sinful condition, we are more man-centered than we are God-centered. And turning over a new leaf, man, that's just pure humanism. It's pure man-centered theology. Because no matter how many times and how many different ways you turn over a leaf, it's still a what? A leaf. I love how nature teaches us about God, though. Have you ever considered a caterpillar? Now, a caterpillar one day will turn into a beautiful butterfly. Now, the caterpillar does not wake up one day and go, you know what, I don't like crawling on the ground or climbing on trees and eating uh, a bunch of leaves, so I think I'm going to spin myself a nice little cocoon and turn into this beautiful butterfly. Like, caterpillar does not have that conversation with itself. But it naturally happens. Why? Because it is a God-created, ordained system of transformation. And that's precisely what every one of us needs. That on our own, we are sinners incapable of coming to God but as we surrender to the person and work of Jesus Christ on that cross and that resurrection God sends his spirit to live inside of us and he begins to change us from the inside out he metamorphoses us it's where we get the, the word for transformation he transforms us from something that is dead to something that is alive so my question to you this morning is going to be this. Are you a leaf or are you a butterfly? Now I'm not going to ask a question without giving an answer from Scripture. So here we go. How can I know? Three things. First, 
Have you trusted the gospel? Nothing else matters apart from this point. I'm never going to ask you, well, were you baptized in order to be saved? I'm not going to ask you, did you go to church every week to be saved? Hey, did you read your Bible so that you're saved? Pray, give, whatever. What I'm always going to ask is this. Have you come to the point where you recognize that you are a sinner, alienated from God, but understand that Jesus came to die in your place, that he took your sin, and in exchange he gave you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 will be there, I don't know if this pace in a month. Um, but we'll be there in a little bit. The, the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, called that verse the great exchange. Because at the cross, Jesus took all the sins and he gave us all of Christ's righteousness. Have you come to that place where you trust in him and him alone? One of the evidences that we have is the second thing I would say, and that is this, to proclaim the gospel. If we truly appreciate what God has done for us, how can we not shout it to the ends of the earth? How? I mean, if you go out to a new restaurant here in the Westlake area, whether it's good or bad, you telling somebody. All right, most people get on social media and tell the whole world. Now, if we can do that about a restaurant, and by the way, I enjoy a good meal as much as the rest of you. But this is what I know. One good meal is not going to suffice for the rest of my life, let alone the rest of that day. So if it's important enough for me to get on social media or by word of mouth and tell people, hey, you have got to go to this place and eat, then how much more so is it important for you and I to share the only message that can save a lost, sin-sickened world? Church, they don't need our politics. They don't need our sports. They don't need our weather. They need our Jesus. When is it going to be intolerable that anybody in our sphere of influence dies and goes to hell? So this is going to be the third week that I come to this place. Who is your one? Who is the one person that you are praying for every single day? Because they do not have a relationship with God. Who are you praying? God Soften their heart. Begin to draw them to yourself. God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Who is it? If you don't have them, please get them. Because I refuse to believe that you don't have a friend, a relative, an acquaintance, or a neighbor that you know that doesn't know Jesus. It's kind of incongruent with the fact somewhere around 75% of those in North America don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm pretty sure we're not the person that doesn't know one. So who is it? Will we love God enough? This isn't about loving anybody else but God enough to risk rejection, to share with them the one message that could change their life. You know why I know it can change their life? Because he's changing mine. And if God can save this guy, I guarantee you there's no one worse than who I was before Jesus found me. And if God can save me, I guarantee he can save them. It's not that America doesn't want 
to hear the gospel. It's the fact the church has closed its mouth with the gospel. If we love them, we're going to proclaim it last. Spend time with Jesus. You remember we talked earlier in the sermon, Moses go up, 40 days come down, 3,000 people die. All right, Moses in a fit of anger, which was sinful, by the way. God says, hey, Moses, come on up here. So he goes back up another 40 days. And Moses has this strange request. He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God says, no man can look on God and live. He says, I'll do you a favor. Moses, go hide in the cleft of that rock right there, and I'm going to make the backside of my glory pass by, and you can see that. Moses like, whoop, all right. And so he does. And that, and that encounter with, Moses, uh, with God for Moses calls his face to just radiate with the glory of God. So much so that it frightened Israel. And so Moses put a, a veil on it. Now that veil was not only to not frighten Israel, but I believe it was also to kind of hide the fact that the further Moses got from his meeting with God, the less he reflected the glory of God. Because every time Moses went into the, meet, the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle, his face would come out glowing. But after a while, that glory would fade, just like the old covenant. This is what I want to get to you. It's impossible for you and I to spend time with Jesus and not be changed. You, you and I, as brothers and sisters of Christ, if we encounter the living God through the living word, Read it, understand it, and obey it. There's no chance that we won't be changed. There should be evidence in our lives that we have met with Jesus today. So that's going to be my last three questions for you. Are we closer to God because we have worshipped today? Let me qualify that one. We haven't worshipped until we respond. See, worship is a verb something we actively do. Sitting down, singing a few songs and listening to somebody preach for 40, 45 minutes. Folks, that's not worship. Worship is when I hear the living God think, speak through his word and I respond. The second question I would ask you is this. Have we heard the spirit of God because we've heard the word of God today? Have we rightly divided the word of truth? And here's the most important question I'm going to ask you. How are we going to respond in light of encountering the living God? Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Fathers, we close this portion of service. Lord, we counted a, a joy and a privilege to be able to open your word as Father it reveals the glory of God the holiness of God it, it also reveals the sinlessness of, of the sinfulness of man Lord there's not a single person here who isn't a sinner but Father it doesn't mean that we're without hope because you are our hope you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And if we would repent of our sin, of trusting in ourselves and simply trust in you, that Lord, you would save us, you would forgive us 
cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Uh, Father, we would live not only with you eternally, but God, you would live in us every day until we see you face to face. Father, we come to this time that I would argue is the most important. Music's great. Being able to hear the word of God is important. But Father, we don't want to leave here having not worshipped. We don't want to leave here without being changed. And so Lord, not knowing exactly what you've said to those who are here, simply rely on the truth of your scriptures. Say, as the word of God goes out, it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which you desire it to. So, Lord, whatever you desire our response to be, may we love you enough to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want, we're going to sing one more uh, song together.